1: Hey, this is Dave Burkus, author of the new book, Friend of a Friend. And if you want to learn a better way to network strengthened by science, but put into practice by my man, Travis Chapel, you need to be listening to the Build Your Network podcast. You have the ambition the knowledge, and the experience, but still lack those relationships necessary for achieving true success. Welcome to Build Your Network, your guide to growing your inner circle, increasing your influence, and assisting others in reaching their goals. This is networking the way it should be, brought to you by your host, Travis Chapel.
0: What is up and welcome to the one and only show that brings you tips and tricks on networking from the best experts around three days a week. Although they may not all be in the same field, every guest that comes on the show has one very important thing in common. They believe, as I do, that building relationships is crucial to achieving success in life. I cannot wait to introduce you to today's guest. But first, if you have not done this already, please go ahead and schedule a quick chat with me. I would love to talk with you sometime just for 10 or 15 minutes over the phone. Um, Head on over to buildyournetwork.co forward slash FB. And in the pinned welcome post in the top of my Facebook group, you'll see a link that goes directly to my calendar. And there you can schedule a quick chat. Love to talk with you sometime. So I'll catch you there or I'll catch you in the Facebook group. And now let's go ahead and chat with today's guest, David Berkus. David is a best-selling author, a sought-after speaker, and associate professor of leadership and innovation at Oral Roberts University. His forthcoming book, Friend of a Friend, offers readers a new perspective on how to grow their networks and build key connections, one based on the science of human behavior, not rote networking advice. He's delivered keynotes to the leaders of Fortune 500 companies and the future leaders of the United States Naval Academy. His TED Talk has been viewed over 1.8 million times. And he's a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review. David, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. Welcome. And then why don't you go ahead and tell us something that you're most excited about right now?
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I guess I'm probably most excited about, you said author earlier, the new book, Friend of a Friend is out and it's probably what's most exciting. It's been out for a little while now. And so people are on like Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook sending me pictures of them reading the copies and stuff, which is is really cool to see. I mean, not only the people are reading it, but also how it sort of resonates through kind of my own network too, which is a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, totally, totally. It's kind of like your child. So it's really cool to probably like see it in fruition. You know what I
1: mean? That's really. Yeah, no, totally. Although don't tell my wife that. I think Mm. she'd probably have a problem with me equating it to a child. But, you know, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I just won't share this to your (laughs) timeline after. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, cool, man. So it was really funny because Dave and I were talking a little bit before the show started. As all of you guys know who listen to the show frequently, I usually spend the first 10 or 15 minutes just talking about what the guest is good at, what their expertise is. And then we'll talk about networking, later. Later on in the conversation. So this is gonna be a unique interview because if you didn't catch it, David's new book, Friend of a Friend, is all about growing and building your network, doing it the right way. And I like that little phrase in there. It's not about the rote networking advice that, you know, is just like all thrown around all the time. So it's more the science of how to network, which is really, really cool. So we'll go ahead and jump right into the conversation about networking here, David. And this is the way that I start off every single conversation. This is the question that I ask to get the conversation rolling in that direction and then We'll uh, jump right into the rest of it. Do you believe that what you know or who you know is more important
1: and why? So I think this is a really funny question because before we settled on friend of a friend, one of the working titles of the book was literally who, you know, right in this argument. So I think it's definitely who, you know, I think who knows what, you know, is probably the most important, but I lean towards who, you know, And perhaps even more importantly, I think most people say that phrase, it's not what, you know, it's who, you know, in, a, in like a, they throw up their hands in frustration, like, oh, it's not what, you know, it's I think that's actually tremendously good news because who you know is also inside your control, right? Mm -hmm. It's something that you can positively affect. And so I think people tend to like go, oh, it's all who you know, like that's a bad thing. But in reality, it's really, really good news.
0: Yeah, totally. I think it comes down to the perspective there because I'm on the same page as the other. Usually, when people say that to me, it's like, you know, it's not what you know, it's who, you know. It's because they just like lost out to a job from some guy that knew the hiring manager, even though like they're more qualified, you know, like they're complaining about it, like, oh, it's not what you know, it's who, you know. It's like, well, why don't you just go get to know more people? <laughs> and, and, <laughs> exactly and you, right. You get the job because you know the hiring manager. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the book here. Where did it come from? Where did it stem from? Is this something that you've always kind of been in as far as like thought leadership? Far, is this something that's always intrigued you? Or was it something just most recently that you were like, hey, this is actually really interesting stuff?
1: Yeah, so it's a little bit of both. So the big idea to me is that we need to kind of redefine networking. I think for a lot of people, they think it just means meeting strangers, right? Having the perfect elevator pitch, having the right way to introduce yourself, all of those sort of things. And in reality, I think if you want to build your network, you want to grow your network. It's more about understanding the network that's already around you. And so as an author, I had written about a couple different times in support of my work a couple different studies from the world of network science, but there's really, there's been about five or six decades of people from sociology, psychology, mathematics, even physics, studying networks, in particular person to person networks, but all sorts of networks. And they found, I mean, some honestly amazing insights that don't make it in to the networking advice books, right? We're still kind of using, I mean, Dale Carnegie and how to win friends with people. It's great. You know, Keith Rossi, never read alone. It's great, but it's just one person's perspective and it only is really valuable if you collect multiple different people's perspective. And what we call collecting the stories of multiple people, we call that research. We call that science. And so why not go over to what the science of people who are studying networks has to say about how the network you're already in operates? Hmm. And so the study
0: of all of this stuff basically eventually was just turning into this book that
1: came out. That's exactly right. So the book kind of came out as a reaction of like, I think this is what people need more than advice. I think they need someone and I get it. A lot of I mean, if you've I had to write academic papers for one point in my life as a professor, and I get it. They're really, really esoteric. They're written in weird verbiage and they're read by about twelve people, including the author's mom, <laughs> right? And so somebody needed to kind of like translate it to bring it from the ivory tower into the corner office or the co-working space or whatever. And so that became the goal. All right, let's write a book that teaches people how to network by teaching them network science. Yeah, the actual real raw data, right? Yeah, exactly. So so give me one
0: example of what that might look like.
1: There's a couple that have migrated over. If you were ever familiar with sort of like the strength of weak ties, that started as a paper and has been proven in a bunch of different ways that your weak and dormant ties are, are more effective for new information than your close contacts. The thing that I think is probably most interesting is... We dove really, really deep into the research behind six degrees of separation, or maybe you have played the game six degrees of Kevin Bacon. And what's fascinating to me isn't that we're all of 7.4 billion people in the world. We're one network that is five or six introductions away from people. It's the way that you search has a dramatic effect on what you find. So in other words, the early studies that showed five or six introductions were based on, you know, if you were a participant, I would recruit you and then I would tell you go relay this message to this specific person. In the first study, it was a stockbroker in Cambridge. And then when the message finally arrived, it'd count the number of links that you had to get the message through to get to that person. Well, when we start replicating the studies now in sort of a big data era, we start finding that it's actually closer to three or four because the algorithms that are being written to crunch all of these numbers of people's networks are able to find the most optimal path that we can't find. In fact, in network science, it's called the problem of search in social networks. Now, to translate this into like, Okay, that's the nerdy part. What's the practical part? <laughs> yeah. Most of us, when we're trying to get introduced to a person or to a company, right, we work backwards. We LinkedIn stalk them, let's say, and then we see who we have in common and then we go beg for an introduction. In reality, the problem of search tells us that our approach should be to be asking lots of different people who do you know in blank? With blank being that industry, that company, that city that we want to get to know more people in, and let people generate a list of multiple different people. When those lists kind of merge on two or three names, that's a definite signal that we have to get in touch with them. But in general, we're better off trying to get as many possible introductions in the beginning and then sort of narrowing down instead of starting from the end and trying to work our way backwards.
0: Yeah. And all this is super fascinating to me because actually the main reason I started this show was to kind of test out the sixth degree of separation theory, because it was always something that fascinated me because growing up, you know, you're kind of taught that you can't really ever get in touch with some people that you want to get in touch with, you know, like you see a celebrity on screen or watch your favorite sport or something. And it's like, oh man, it'd be so cool to go hang out with LeBron James, you know? And then it's like, Everybody's always telling you, well, that's just impossible. It can't be done. And I started the show because I just started asking the question, why not? You know, like, why can't it be done? And I've always heard the six degree of separation thing. If that's true, and I'm only like three or four introductions away to meeting like a role model of mine, why would I not try to put in the work to figure out how to do that? So you're saying that it's actually less than six degrees.
1: Yeah. So if you, literally, if you have a Facebook account, it's only three to four degrees. And that's not just because only 2 billion people are are on Facebook and 7.4 billion are on the planet. It's also because of, you know, there is an optimal way, like an algorithm could find it. You as an individual can't find it. So you have to take a little bit more broad approach. The other thing that's interesting that you find when you study sort of the whole network is that the number of potential people making those connections are so numerous that it's possible. So let's use Kevin Bacon, right? Six degrees of Kevin Bacon is the game. And it sends this message that, oh, he's just so connected because he's been in all these movies with everybody. It's actually not true. If you crunch the numbers, he's the 669th most connected person in Hollywood. Right. So he doesn't. So Kevin Bacon doesn't have Kevin Bacon's network. Right. And and so the idea that you need to even have this Rolodex of 10,000 people before you can go meet the, the LeBron James of the world, it's just simply not true. Our networks are so interconnected. And so the term in social science is resilient that you can relay that message without even being there, but you can be the 669th most connected person in a network. And you're still really, really close to those people that you would want to get connected to. So
0: in writing this book, was it more like trying to bring awareness around this idea? Because kind of what we're talking about in the who you know versus what you know, I find that a lot of people think that it's who you know, and a lot of people would even say that it's who you know, but there's not a lot of people that are actually consistently constantly working on building their network or staying in touch with people they've already networked with having a follow up system. So can you talk into that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think for a lot of people, networks are sort of an organic thing. Like they grow because you change jobs and that adds a new list of coworkers, or they grow because you join a certain sort of conference that you attend every year. And so when they grow organically, I think that leads to a lot of people, like you said, throwing up their hands and going, oh, it's just who you know, because they don't sort of realize that they are in control of that. Like the example that I always use, right, is that I believe we need to be intentional about all of our relationships, even the least ones in our network, right? But most of us, like I'm married, and if I were to say to my wife, like, no, you know what? I forgot our anniversary because I didn't set a reminder because I wanted it to be organic and spontaneous. I didn't want it to feel inauthentic. That's not going to fly. You can't do that very many times in a row and still be married. I was right? going to say, so, wait, that didn't work. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. Right. But why is any relationship any different? We ought to be. No, I don't need to set reminders for the anniversary of when I met every single person, but I should probably be doing something if I value that relationship to be intentional about it. Like you said, that could be a follow up system that could be making a Regular appearance where I know that these people will be, whatever it is. And so, yeah, the goal of the book to me is really to teach people, here's how networks work. Now you design the system that will help you be intentional about all of those relationships. I can't give you a system because then it would be inauthentic, but I can help you design one that works for you that is in line with these principles that'll help you be intentional about all of your relationships, not just the sort of the most important ones we know. If it's true for them, it's true for all of our relationships.
0: This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. So when you're going out to try to, quote unquote, build a network or just increase your personal inner circle, would you say that it's harmful or hurtful to seek out people that are in the field that you're in specifically? Is there a season for everything and you should seek those connections out and then switch to another thing to bring in other perspectives? What does that look like?
1: Yeah. So, so we actually wrestle with this in the book. There's two chapters that are very deliberately next to each other. One is called seek out silos is literally that idea of, you know, you do need a community of people who are community of practice. Uh, my friend Jeff Goins calls it a scene, right? You need that cluster of people that can help you develop and grow. Mm-hmm. At the same time, the other chapter is talking about this concept in network science called structural holes. As people get closer and closer to each other, and as you get more deeply embedded in that one community, every new connection you make becomes redundant. Everybody starts to just talk to each other, think alike, act alike, etc. And the people that provide the most value in a network are actually the people that bridge the gap between two different clusters. The the proper term in network science is a structural hole created when those two groups cluster towards each other. And the brokers, the people that build a bridge, actually unlock the most amount of value. The delicate part is knowing sort of when you've been embedded in that community enough. In general, to me, it's I think if you're just starting out in your career, I think what you need to focus on is be a little bit more embedded in that community, get to know more People who are doing what you do in your industry or you know or in your sector or a similar stage in life, whatever it is depending on your needs. But eventually you'll get to a point where as you meet new people, they all kind of have the same thing to say, they all kind of have the same advice. And that's when it's time to start sort of pivoting and really having a foot in both circles. You're never gonna leave that cluster entirely. You're just gonna know that I need to limit the amount of time. The example that I use often is a harbor and a ship, right? Ships are safe in a harbor, that's where they get restocked, that's where they get repaired. That's a great place to be, that's your cluster, but a ship wasn't to be in the harbor all the time, eventually you've got to set sail and go to some other harbor and be able to connect those two communities.
0: Yeah, I, I totally love this. And that was exactly where I wanted this conversation to head into this structural whole idea, because this is something that people have asked me. So I run a mastermind. And whenever I tell people, "Hey, I have a mastermind, they're like, okay, what's it about? Is it about podcasting? Is it about networking? Like, what exactly is the thing about? I'm like, honestly, I just bring a bunch of different people from a bunch of different backgrounds and industries and businesses, put them together in one group and say, let's talk. Because I've found that there is a a tremendous amount of value in bringing outside perspective into your business. Because exactly what you're saying, I found to be totally true. Like, I'll go to, you know, to a podcasting conference, and if I'm at a podcasting conference, everybody knows Jordan Harbinger, right? A mutual, <laughs> mutual friend of ours, right? Everybody yeah. knows who the guy is. So it's like, oh, you know Jordan Harbinger? It's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, he was talking about blah, 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 blah. But what I found really fascinating was that when I started branching off and going to some other conferences that weren't strictly podcasting, I was like, you know, Jordan Harbinger from, you know, the Art of Charm and now the Jordan Harbinger show. And they're like, no, no, I don't know who that is. And it was like, initially, it was just mind blowing to me. I was like, wait, You don't know who that is. You don't know who John Lee Dumas is. You don't. You know what I mean? Like it was like this total disconnect there. But then I would mention like Kevin Harrington or Grant Cardone or a sales giant or, you know, venture capitalist. And it was like, oh, yeah, totally. I follow that guy. You know what I mean? I'm always following that guy's content. And what I found was to be true is exactly this. People put themselves into these situations where they're totally disconnected from every other industry and it shuts off the ability to continue to grow and learn at a faster pace because you're, like you said, only learning the same stuff that everybody else is learning, right? So this whole idea of a structural hole is super fascinating to me. I've never been able to articulate it until I started following some of your stuff. So how do you become that broker? Is there a period of time? Is there an amount of knowledge? Is there amount of connections before, you know, like, okay, now it's time for me to go be a part of another community.
1: Yeah. So this is where, you know, networking sort of like medicine, it's a science and an art, right? This is where we sort of flip from, we know the science of structural holes. So now there's the fine art of knowing that I would say for everybody, it's a little bit different feel. If you're on the edges of the community, then no, you can't just be the crazy guy screaming. I think we should talk to the other community. That's not going to work very well. <laughs> but if you're embedded to that point where you start to feel like, okay, I'm hearing the same names all the time. I'm seeing everybody is listening to the same two or three People. Every time I meet someone, there's not that much sort of new information I'm getting for that person. That the term again in network science is embeddedness. You get to this point where you're deep enough embedded in the community where people trust you, but also where you can be that bridge for them. And that's when it's time to start reaching out. And I think that's when you know masterminds like the one that you run are hugely important. It's time to start exploring the other connections you have, even connections that are sort of non-work related that let you stumble into other communities. I, I think you generally want to find you know, sort of one community at a time. You don't want to go out now. Okay. Now I am deeply embedded enough in the podcasting community. So now I'm going to learn everything about everything. That's not going to work either. Right. But if you can start moving over into a little bit different community and find one, you know, want to know a bit more about, right? So podcasting, you mentioned, you know, John Lee Dumas and a couple other people. Well, that it sort of bridges up against the internet marketing and the direct marketing space. So I need to get a little bit more penetrated in that. And maybe there's some value creation there. And and in fact, actually, I'm thinking about an example in the book. We talk about just to run with podcasting for a time. We talk about Gimlet, the podcasting company that runs startup and a bunch of other shows that are good. But like I was talking with a few folks that are in the podcasting space that also have Broker Connect. To the world of marketing, that realize like they're missing these huge opportunities because their whole revenue model is based off of what an old radio model would be, which is make good content and sell ads on it. Instead of thinking, well, maybe you make good content and it's a lead generating tool and there's another revenue source on the back end or yeah. what have you, there's all of these different business models that that community, specifically Gimlet, doesn't see, right? Because they don't have enough of those connections. So they're probably a great example of that sort of redundant community, right? They're listening to all of the same people, they're hiring former public radio people et cetera. When in reality, the couple of them should be seeing, okay, what are the spaces that butt up against this that are close to it, but aren't the same thing? And what are the good ideas that we can steal and migrate over? And my, you know, my first book was actually on creativity and innovation. And this is what you find almost every disruptive innovation in an industry is basically stolen from one industry and brought over to another. Well, how do you think that happens? It happens because brokers are spanning that structural hole and bringing that idea over.
0: Yeah man th- th- this is why I love these conversations because like I feel that I'm I'm just a curious person in general David so like I'll just test things out and then come up with my own little theories, but I have no idea if it's actual <laughs> truth. You know what I mean? So like everything that we're talking about is stuff that like I've been thinking about and talking about on my show and all these different spaces and in my mastermind and stuff. I have just never been able to actually like prove that what I'm saying is accurate. It's like, look, this is my experience.
1: You know, I've found this to be true, and, and so it's it's good knowing that I'm not just a crazy. <laughs> uh, well, I'm glad I could write the manual that explains it. I mean, truthfully, this is one of my struggles in the book was that very few people that I wrote about were even aware of this stuff. I'm. Just find me examples from people, Jordan's in the book and, and a few others that are in line with the research, despite not knowing what the research says. My favorite example is actually I wrote about Tim Ferriss and what he calls the surround sound effect that is actually a very, very established thing in the world of network science called the illusion of majority. Right. So there's this network science principle. And here's this other person. That's this great example of it. They don't know. But then I'm trying to be that broker. Right. So you're another one. I just secretly wish that you and I had connected while I was still writing the book so we could put your story and your ideas in it. But hey, oh, man, Next one, next one. There's always another book, so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. So talk to me about this idea of super
0: connectors because this is something that's, that's that's really fascinating to me. Is this the person that bridges the gap between the communities, this person that fills that structural hole or is this like a totally separate concept?
1: So sometimes but not always, right? That's the lesson of Kevin Bacon is you don't actually have to be the most connected person to be a bridge. Anybody can be. Super connectors are more likely to be one. So a super connector in a network science terminology, this is a term that, interestingly enough, migrated from the world of science to the world of the sort of networking advice books, but got misinterpreted and is often referred to as that person that is the linchpin of the community. That can be true. It's also not true. In general, in network science, we use the term super connector to refer to anyone that has a disproportionate number of connections. So we tend to think of when you think about your network, you tend to think of like, okay, here's mine. And it's above average or it's below average. But average. even using the term average implies the fancy term is a normative distribution, right? An inverted U, if we were to graph the number of connections that every person, every listener to this show has. When I say average, people think that it's an inverted U. In reality, it's actually a power law. It's a Pareto principle. It's an 80-20. There are certain people that have exponentially more connections than other people. We call those people super connectors. And the real lesson of super connectors isn't that they connect a community. The real lesson of it is that these are literally the people... When you look to networking and try and and even build your own network, these are the people that you get frustrated looking at a lot of times because you go, it looks so easy to them. Well, it is easy to them. It's easy to them because the more connections you have, the more you leverage another network science principle called preferential attachment. And what preferential attachment says is that the most connected people in a community are the ones who are most likely to meet new people. The more connections you have, the more potential introductions you have. And so when new people enter that network, that community, you're the person that they're most likely to meet. So it's almost like a compound interest effect. If you're thinking about growing your network and you're going, oh, it's so hard and these other people, it seems so easy. It's easy to them because they put in the time, they put in the work and now they're reaping the compound interest. So yeah. yes, there are people that make networking look easy. The good news is that if you put in the time and you put in the work, you'll be one of those people one day too. Right, they were rolling the ball up the hill for the first half, you know what I mean? Like, right, the, and now it's all downhill and it's accumulating extra snow, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just yeah. massive,
0: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, totally. So this whole concept, man, is so cool to me. So if you're sitting out there and this is something that you're like, man, I'm just not a good network. I'm not a good connector. I would think that most people when they first start are not very good at it anyway. And they tend to be the guy that shows up to the networking event and has like a thousand hot off the press business cards because he ran out of the thousand that he had <laughs> yeah, before with at the, the last event. To print at the bottom. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I call him networking Ned, and He's <laughs> just a total stereotypical like networking douche bag that shows up and like chucks business cards at you, throws up an elevator pitch and then asks for business and moves on to the next person. What are some ways that we can tell that we are that person? And how do we avoid being that person?
1: So, I I mean, I'll be honest, if you're going to one of those events, you're that person, right? So (laughs) it it turns out in the research that these unstructured, and I'm very specifically talking about the unstructured network events, the, the cocktail hour at the conference, right? The meetup that doesn't really have an agenda. These events are very, very useful for reconnecting with weak and dormant ties, people you already know, but you haven't seen it in a while. And in fact, that's what most people do. Despite wanting to go to these events and meet new people, most of us spend our time talking to other people we already know because of that lack of structure. Mm -hmm. So instead, what what most people, if the goal is to meet new people, the research suggests you should be participating in something with more structure, what the researcher Brian Uzi calls a shared activity, something where there's a goal, there are stakes, right? So there you can actually fail in this goal. And there's something other than connecting with people to focus on, but that you need to work with other people to do. This is everything from volunteering for a nonprofit, doing like a charity race, right? Or building a home for Habitat for Humanity. Or it can be like, we're going to have this problem solving session, we're all going to attend this workshop. In the book, I talk about Pixar, the film company, and how they have a training and development department that runs classes that have, at first glance, nothing to do with the work of making movies, but people come together to learn and learning as a shared activity makes people who are like, you might be in security and you might work for the kitchen and you might be the chief marketing officer. And yet they all come together and get to know each other better because they're partaking in this shared activity. So it's a much better plan to seek out those shared activities. It also has the after effect of keeping you from being networking net. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the after effect. Yeah, I really like that. So if you were to put together like the ultimate
0: networking conference, David, where it's just like there's a lot of collaboration, there's networking with an agenda like you were talking about, what would that look like? Would it be some of like community activities or gamification of like, what would that look like?
1: Yes, I have to give a shout out here to someone that runs very close to the Ultimate Networking Conference, Jason Gaynard. Do you know Jason? I know of him, but I do not know him. We'll have to connect you with him because it's again, he's my friend of a friend of a friend for you and we'll connect you to. But Jason runs an event called Mastermind Talks and the event is about 150 people, half of whom were at the last one, half of whom are new, right? So there's a good mix of old and weak connections. The average day starts with an activity You can sign up for, you know, everything from like yoga some, to trail running to meditation to a couple different activities that everybody can participate in. I mean, some people do choose to sleep in an extra hour, but it starts with an activity. In the mornings are usually all together in a talk or, a, you know, the normal sort of keynote that we're used to in conferences. The meals are all planned for and he rotates around who you sit with. The afternoons are these things he calls round tables. So based on shared interests, you come together for just, you know, brainstorming. It's That's the smaller mastermind thing. Then later in the afternoon, there are more activities, trail running, skeet shooting, which apparently is the most popular one from last year's conference, but I didn't get to go to last year's conference. I'm a little sad about that. (laughs) And then then again, dinner where it's it's sort of more planned out. So there's this moving back and forth between the content delivery and these shared activities. There's a a specific curation to who gets to come and what the right balance of old and new connections is. And there's every attention to detail paid to even in what seems like an unstructured thing, like a dinner, let's make sure that there are still those kind of collisions. That would be sort of the closest thing to a perfect conference. That I can see. He does it around entrepreneurship. There's a lot of people listening that are probably not in that space, which means that the business is wide open in your space to replicate a similar conference and pay attention to these details.
0: Yeah, super cool. Super cool. That's actually something that I really want to try to create in the next couple of years is that I'm trying to soak in as much as I can as far as conferences and stuff, because I find that most conferences are content driven, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But I feel like for me personally, and most of the people that I end up talking to, people go to conferences for the relationships, for the connections, for the networking, so to speak. And then like you said, like they'll have a, a speakers all day long and then they'll have like a cocktail party at the end and like that's it. And so I think there's a very, very high value to creating something where people can actually come together and collaborate, get to know each other, connect around things on purpose instead of just like, Oh, so what do you do? Okay, cool. So what do you do? Oh wow, wow, okay, this is what I do. Let's all exchange cards, move on to the next table type thing. Uh, right. No,
1: I mean the beauty of some conferences though is that when that that person, the networking Ned running around going, So what do you do? Is at least there's a speech you can pretend to be interested in and break yourself away from that conversation. Right. But, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. in terms of you know, what we're actually talking about. <laughs> oh, actually, about I really wanted it. to hear this
0: guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we'll connect later, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, perfect. That brings me to a great question for you, man. This is a question I've been asking more people recently because it's fascinating to me. Do you have any tips for leaving a conversation that you are just fed up with? Not in a sense of like this person's adding no value, but this is a total networking, Ned. How do
1: I get out of here? So I actually, and this is, again, sort of more art than science, I actually think that no matter what, whether you're intrigued or not, I think you should probably be the first person to break off the thing because then you can at least appear like you're being mindful of their time, right? Mm. So I always do it in a way that's like, hey, you know, I know you've got a ton to do, et cetera, and we'll connect later. You know, we know what we need to connect on, et cetera. So I'll follow up with you later and then jet out. But I do it whether I'm trying to break away because I, I need to get somewhere else or whether I just know that, like, I would love to spend even more time with that person but what they will value is that i'm caring about their calendar and how much time they have as well so i try and be that person that breaks it off always but that person that breaks it off with that mentality that look i know you've got a ton to do i know you got other people to talk to at this event etc so here we trade info and here's mine and i will follow up with you and then here's the key you actually do have to follow up. Even if you feel like, oh, that person is totally you know, useless, you have to at least send a great to chat with you, great to meet you at this event thing mm-hmm. so that you are being true to your word and authentic and that person doesn't just be like, wow, that, that guy was a jerk and totally lied to me, right? He <laughs> was just yeah, trying I'm to get always,
0: away from me, yeah.
1: Yeah, I'm always being that first one to break off the conversation in a way that shows that I am being mindful of their time and how much they've already given me and even though I wanna talk more, I know they've got other things to do what's your go-to way to connect with somebody at something like that? Like,
0: is it, do you still print off business cards and hand it to them? Or is it just like, hey, let's connect on Facebook or here's my number? Or, what does that
1: look like? It depends. I'll oh. usually, I try and ask for their card if they've got one. I mean, if they are that Ned person, then they definitely got one. I usually yeah. don't. <laughs> they definitely have, have one and you probably already have it in your pocket. I already yeah. have it in my <laughs> yeah. hand, right, exactly. <laughs> I usually don't have a card on me, which is actually a flaw I've learned as I'm traveling more international, a flaw I'm learning, because particularly in a lot of Asian cultures, the business card is a ritual. Right. So I truthfully need to get better at having mine in particular. But I generally ask for their card. And even if they say, Hey, you know, can I have a card? I'll say, you know what? I don't have one on me, but give me one of yours and I'll shoot you an email, you know, tonight or tomorrow, et cetera. So I generally go that way of asking for their information. Everybody's got different rules on social media. And so it's it's hard to know like hard to say, let's connect on this because this might not even be something they're on. And even if they are like Facebook for me is very much about like friends and family and people I'm comfortable seeing pictures of my kids playing in the backyard. Right. It's not a place for that person I just met at the conference for me. That's my rule. Yeah. And everybody else has different rules. So I'm usually trying to get their card and follow up with them and usually via email afterwards, although occasionally might go to a text message or LinkedIn or a messenger or something like that just depends on the relationship. Got it. Got it. Yeah. That's typically my answer too when people ask me that it's like you
0: kind of just need to play it by with the person that you're connecting with. Most of the time for me, it's connecting on Facebook, especially if it's anybody that's like around the millennial generation. I typically find that people that are more baby boomers, like a little bit older, just like you said, it's the ritual, the business card. Like that's just the thing that that you give. And, And they actually might even look at you as not being as professional because you don't have a business card. Like it's just a huge legitimacy factor that brings to the table. So I have them, I print them, I have like I don't know, a hundred of them. Like I I don't print off them by the thousands because I don't hand them out like candy, but I'll have a few in my pocket at an event typically in case somebody's like, hey, you have a business card? And it's like, Oh, we can connect on Facebook. Well, I'm not on Facebook. Okay, here's a card. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so so much stuff that we could continue talking about here, man. I wish we had some more time. But we're coming up here to the end of the conversation. I do want to ask you about this, since we've kind of touched on it here and there, sprinkled it here and there. I want to ask you more specifically about how you feel about paying for masterminds. Like basically, <laughs> another way to put it is paying for friendships. Like, how do you how do you view <laughs> that? How do you view that? Like, what does that look like?
1: I'll say this. I have a hard time mentally with the idea of paying for masterminds. Mm -hmm. However, I also know that masterminds require a skilled and trained facilitator. And that's what you're really paying for. You know, I've been a part of masterminds that are unpaid and nobody wants to lead. I've been a part of unpaid ones where somebody was fantastic. And I've been a part of paid ones where somebody was a terrible facilitator and I thought it was a waste of money. And then ones where somebody was fantastic. So it's not to me, it's not that you're paying for the friends. You're paying for that facilitator. And that person is good and definitely worth paying for.
0: Yeah. And you're getting around other people who also can afford to drop that much money on it, but not also can afford to, they value connections and relationships enough in order to drop that much money on something like that. Whereas a free mastermind, I think you get what you pay for. You know, like if you're going to join a free mastermind, you're in a mastermind with a bunch of other people who also can afford a free mastermind, who also value (laughs) like relationships that are free. You know what I mean? Um, So I think that not only does everybody else get more out of you, but you get more out of everybody else because you're all like in it to win it type of a mentality. But cool. So I just wanted to ask that real quick before we move into the last segment here something i like to call the random round just a few really quick random questions with some quick random answers you ready yeah let's go for it this is the random round what profession other than your own do you think it would be fun
1: to attempt So I have a really esoteric hobby. I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I've been doing it for about 11 years now. I have a black belt in it, but I am a terrible competitor. I think it'd be fun if I could actually find a way to make a living doing it, being an actual competitor. That said, most of the world champions can't make a living just doing it as a competition. So I think all of us are struggling with that. But it'd be really cool to have sort of that be the main focus. I don't think I'd find it as fun as what I'm doing now, so I think I'll stick with what I'm doing now. If you could sit on a park bench with someone, past or present, and talk to them for an hour, who would it be and why? Milton Hershey The guy that started the Hershey chocolate company, what a lot of people don't know is towards the end of his life, he also started a school for orphans, people who had parents die, societal or biological orphans. And when he was getting ready to, you know, preparing his estate, et cetera, he actually formed a trust for the school and then gave all of his shares in Hershey Foods to the trust. So it's not to this day, it's not that Hershey Foods donates money to the school. The school literally owns the company, right? All because he thought about this is 100 years before social entrepreneurship was cool. He was living it. So, I think it'd be fantastic to talk to him about how he thought of it, what led to it, all of those sort of things. How do you like to consume content, books, blogs, audiobooks, podcasts, or videos? Yes. Uh, I, mean, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I'm a sucker for the printed book. I love writing them. I think they're sort of a work of art, et cetera. So that's probably my favorite thing to do. But I also usually have a podcast or, or ironically, a video that I'm listening to more an audio book if we're in the car or working out. So I, a couple different mediums, books are probably my favorite one in terms of enjoyment, but I don't really know that I have a favorite in terms of how I learn the information best.
0: Give me one book that you've read recently that you would recommend and one podcast you listen to often that you would recommend.
1: Well, we already talked about the Jordan Harbinger show all of the time. Probably Ryan Hawk has Learning Leader Show that's pretty solid. There's also this guy, Travis Chappell, that runs this thing about networking. That's a pretty good show. Yes. Uh, <laughs> in terms of books, I'm having to look over at my bookshelf and figure out Probably. I haven't read it recently. I I try and read it every couple of years. But Roger Martin has this book called The Opposable Mind, which is all about how do you actually reconcile two opposing thoughts, two strategies, two business models in your mind and find that rather than the either or. How do you actually find the yes and that Stephen Covey talks about? And that's a phenomenal, like mind blowing book. Give us a glimpse of your morning routine. I wake up between five and six in the morning when I get kicked in the face from the six year old or the four year old. usually sleeping on my face and then get them ready for school once they drop off at school it's my uh, usually deep work time so that could be writing it could be creating something else then around noontime there's the normal kind of noon jujitsu practice that a lot of guys that have awesome jobs like me um, meet up for Then come back and that's when we do in the afternoon do the phone calls the podcast interviews all of the sort of reactive work until they're usually actually somebody else picks them up from school my wife my mom actually is our nanny and then around 4 35 that's when i come upstairs from my office and and get hang out with them so that's actually not just the morning routine that's the whole day what is your go-to pump up song so this is what's weird so i was i grew up in philly so I, it has to be a rocky song but it's actually much more eye of the tiger than it is the opening and what's funny about that is that eye of the tiger was actually more about going to california than about philly right but it's, <laughs> it's that it's you yeah. know he leaves philly when that song comes into play but hey it still is what are you not very good at? Well, I'm pretty bad at international level Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and that's why that's not my, my profession. Mm-hmm. Don't put it that way. It's, something I, <laughs> it's a hobby. I define hobbies as things that you love, that you're kind of good at, but not good enough to get paid at. So yeah, that'd be one of them. As we get everything
0: wrapped up here, David, what is one
1: place online where we'll be able to find you the most? So my site, davidburkus.com has pretty much everything links to the books, links to social media, all of that sort of stuff. However, that's probably going to get linked to in the show notes for this episode. If you're listening to this, I already know you love Travis. So go to the show notes for his episode. That's where you'll find me too. So go there. Perfect.
0: Perfect. And if you're driving, that's David Burkus. B-U-R-K-U-R. S. David, thanks so much for coming to the show today, man. Everybody listening, you need to go pick up a copy of David's new book, Friend of a Friend. I know that it's going to be one of the top priorities for my book list coming up here. So if this is a conversation that at all interests you, which it should be because this is what my entire show is about. So uh, <laughs> if this is a topic that you're interested in, you would need to go pick up this book. Reach out to David. Tell him what's up. Tell him thank you and tell him you heard about him here at Build Your Network. David, thanks so much for coming to the show today, man. Had a blast.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me